Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. Hey everyone, thanks again for joining. In the last episode, we did a stellar physical and history on a psoriasis patient, and he's coming back to see you and Dr. G in today's episode to discuss treatment options. We'll start today's episode by going through the basics of immunology and treatments for psoriasis in order to get ready. Before we do that, let's quick review our reaction patterns and start with our disclaimer. This episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmstead Medical Center, or their affiliates. Again, the five broad categories of our reaction patterns are papulosquamous, eczematous, vascular, dermal, and vesicle bullous. We break the first category, papulosquamous disorders, into five subcategories, which include 1. Psoriasiform, resembling the prototype psoriasis. 2. Pityriasiform, which resembles pityriasis rosea. 3. Lichenoid, resembling lichen planus. 4. Annular, such as tinea corporis. And 5. Erythroderma. We are currently rolling through the red and scaly papulosquamous disorders and will finish our discussion on psoriasis. To diagnose psoriasis, we can often make a clinical diagnosis and avoid a biopsy by looking at the whole picture the classic erythematous plaques with a silvery scale, the nail changes, joint symptoms, a strong family history of psoriasis, and the presence of triggers or associations such as obesity. You can just hear Dr. Grumpy Pants' voice asking you. Given your natural limitations, you will no doubt rely heavily on your pathologist, so the least you can do is know what he's talking about when he sends you back a report. So tell me, what will a biopsy of psoriasis show? Well, starting at the surface of the biopsy, we classically see confluent perikeratosis, which appears as a thickened stratum corneum with retained nuclei. This confluent perikeratosis correlates to the scale that we see clinically. Due to the increased mitotic activity in psoriasis plaques, keratinocytes get shoved up to the stratum corneum in three to five days rather than the month that it normally takes. So, they don't have time to undergo normal maturation, and they don't lose their nuclei. Along with the perikeratosis in the stratum corneum, we may also see collections of neutrophils called Monroe's microabscesses. We sometimes refer to these as newts in the horn. These Monroe's microabscesses should not be confused with Poutrier's microabscesses seen in mycosis fungoides patients. Next, we may see a decreased or absent stratum granulosum, which contrasts with lichen planus, which classically has a prominent granular layer. Then we also see regular acanthosis, which is a thickening of the epidermis. Not only is the epidermis acanthotic, but it is thin over the dermal papilla, which contains dilated capillaries. These capillaries are exposed during the auspice sign when scale is removed, leading to pinpoint bleeding. And one thing we don't classically see in psoriasis is spongiosis, which is epidermal edema typically seen in eczema but spongiosis may be present in some cases, especially early on. Let's review these histo findings of psoriasis rapid fire. We see confluent perikeratosis, collections of newts in the horn known as Monroe's microabscesses, a decreased or absent granular layer, regular acanthosis, and thin suprapapillary plates. 
Other tests besides a biopsy that you can consider include a KOH to rule out tinea corporis because always remember, if the rash is scaly, scrape it. If the patient complains of swollen or painful joints, you can always do plain x-rays in your workup as well. So before discussing treatment options, I want to discuss some of the nitty-gritty for the pathogenesis of psoriasis, because we must understand what's causing psoriasis at the molecular level in order to understand how to treat it. Remember, we think of psoriasis as an inflammatory disease where a genetically susceptible person with risk factors for psoriasis encounters some kind of environmental trigger, and that trigger stresses the keratinocytes in the skin and activates the immune system. So let's get into the weeds just a little bit and discuss some of this immunology. Starting with some of the basics, remember that we have antigen-presenting cells such as Langerhans and dendritic cells in our skin that present antigens to naive T-cells in the lymph nodes. This causes these T-cells to differentiate into Th1 cells for cell-mediated immunity or Th2 cells for humoral immunity and antibody production. Welcome into the weeds. What are some of the cytokines that are involved in the Th1 pathway? Th1 cells are stimulated by interleukin-12, aka IL-12, and promote CD8 T-cells by making interferon gamma and IL-2, 6, 8, and 12, all of which are overexpressed in psoriasis. Again, Th1 cells are stimulated by IL-12 and themselves make interferon gamma and IL-2, 6, 8, and more IL-12. I must say I'm a bit surprised. I would have wagered you didn't even know what a cytokine was. Now tell me about the Th2 cytokines. Remember, the Th2 cells are stimulated by IL-4 and themselves produced IL-10, the anti-inflammatory cytokine that inhibits the Th1 path. Psoriasis has fewer of these Th2 cells, and thus they have less of the IL-10 anti-inflammatory cytokine, which partially explains why psoriatic plaques are so inflamed. With psoriasis, we believe that it is caused by a T-cell-mediated inflammatory response with imbalances of all these cytokines. We used to think that psoriasis was caused by T-cell autoimmunity. However, no autoantigens have been identified yet. Therefore, when you're talking to patients, it's better to explain that psoriasis is not an autoimmune disease, but rather a disease with excess inflammation in the body. There is a lot that we don't know about the complex pathogenesis of psoriasis, but let's talk more about the basics of what we do know. You're not going to be able to learn this by hearing it once. So listen to this podcast multiple times and study diagrams online to get this down pat. It may sound like alphabet soup at first, but trust me that it's all relevant for understanding our treatments for psoriasis and how they actually work. Before we dive into some more immunology, let's give your mind a rest and listen to the beautiful tones of Dr. Grumpy Pants singing his favorite song. Give me that 2% Lido and ah, push it. Push it real good.
For psoriasis, the two big culprits are Th1 and Th17 cells. We know this because we see increased levels of the Th1 cytokines interfere on gamma, IL-2, IL-6, IL-8, and IL-12. Again, we see increased levels of the Th1 cytokines interfere on gamma in IL-2, 6, 8, and 12. So what do these cytokines actually do? The interferon gamma made by Th1 cells activates macrophages to secrete TNF-alpha, IL-23, and other inflammatory cytokines. IL-2 from Th1 cells generates cytotoxic T lymphocytes in natural killer cells. IL-6 activates acute phase proteins, and IL-8 recruits neutrophils, which remember, these newts form the Monroe's microabscesses. And lastly, we have IL-12 from Th1 cells, which activates even more Th1 cells. Then we have Th17 cells and their cytokines, which are being targeted more and more by newer biologic treatments. If you're still listening in the year 2030, tell my ungrateful deadbeat son my best bottle of aged brandy is in the wine cellar and my key is in my coffin. Anyways, the Th17 cells are stimulated by IL-12 and IL-23. This is important clinically because ustekinumab, also known as Stellara, blocks the P40 subunit that is present on both IL-12 and IL-23. So, when Th17 cells are stimulated by IL-12 and 23, they release IL-17, IL-22, and TNF-alpha. Again, when Th17 cells are stimulated by IL-12 and IL-23, those Th17 cells release IL-17, IL-22, and TNF-alpha. That sentence is so important because all the biologics that we will discuss affect some part of that pathway. So again, third time's a charm, when Th17 cells are stimulated by IL-12 and 23, they themselves release IL-17, IL-22, and TNF-alpha. It's not enough to rattle off lists like some sort of circus animal. You have to understand the concepts. So tell me, what are the functions of these cytokines? IL-17 and IL-22 are pro-inflammatory and increase keratinocyte proliferation, leading to the thick, inflamed plaques that we see clinically. TNF-alpha is pro-inflammatory as well and is also released from macrophages, other T-cells, and the keratinocytes in the skin itself, so it is very important in causing psoriasis. So the brief takeaway from all of this is, Th1 and Th17 cells are super important in causing psoriasis. Th1 cells are stimulated by IL-12 and themselves release interferon gamma, IL-2, 6, 8, and more IL-12. Th17 cells are stimulated by IL-12 and 23, and themselves release IL-17, IL-22, and TNF-alpha. Congratulations, you've merely awoken the sleeping giant that is the pathogenesis of dermatologic disease. Now let's talk treatment for classic plaque psoriasis. The treatment you choose will depend on many things, the severity of disease, surface area affected, pruritus, arthritis, patient preference, patient compliance, and then patient comorbidities such as a history of malignancy or inflammatory bowel disease. Let's first talk about localized psoriasis, maybe just a few plaques here and there. Topical steroids are the mainstay of treatment. 
Simply put, they work by decreasing pro-inflammatory cytokines like TNF-alpha and increase anti-inflammatory cytokines like IL-10. We usually use creams and ointments on the body and oils or foams on the scalp. The strength of steroid used depends on the location and thickness of the plaques. You can use triamcinolone on mild to moderate plaques on the body or clobetazole for thick inflamed plaques, which can even be occluded under saran wrap for better efficacy, but this should only be done in the right patient. Some studies have shown that once daily application of topical steroids is as effective as twice daily applications. Side effects for topical steroids include atrophy, telangiectasias, and striae. Let's talk irreversible side effects. I'm sure you're all too familiar with irreversible brain atrophy from excessive alcohol intake. What is the only irreversible side effect of topical steroids? The answer is striae. The other side effects like atrophy should improve with time and avoidance of topical steroids on that site. If you want to target the scale of psoriatic plaques directly, other topical agents include urea, lactic acid, and salicylic acid shampoos that can be used on the scalp. Another common topical treatment for localized psoriasis is calcipetriene, which is a topical vitamin D analog put on twice daily, which works by decreasing keratinocyte proliferation and blocking IL-2, IL-6, and interferon gamma. Calcipetriene is best used in combination with steroids due to synergistic effects. Side effects of calcipetriene include irritation, photosensitivity, and uncommonly hypercalcemia, since it is a vitamin D analog. Some other topical treatments used less often but worth mentioning include the retinoid tazeratine, calcineurin inhibitors such as tacrolimus, also known as protopic, or pemecrolimus, also known as elidel, can be useful on the face and flexures because they are non-steroidal. Then we also have anthralin, coltars, and salicylic acid. Again, salicylic acid or coal tar shampoos can be helpful for thick plaques on the scalp. If you have patients lather it onto the scalp, leave it on under a shower cap for about 30 minutes, and then rinse it off. When these topical treatments are not enough, we reach for more systemic treatments. Various UV light treatments are first line for moderate to severe psoriasis, but should be avoided in patients with a history of skin cancer or risk factors for skin cancers such as Fitzpatrick type 1 skin or many dysplastic nevi. Narrowband UVB has a wavelength of 311 to 313 nanometers and is typically done in 2 to 3 treatments per week with a total of around 20 treatments needed to achieve efficacy depending on the patient. Broadband UVB can be helpful for gut tate psoriasis flares. And then you have the eczema laser at 308 nanometers, which works great for localized or limited disease, especially on the scalp, which can be tough to reach with the topical treatments we've discussed. Finally, you have PUVA, which stands for Sorolin plus UVA, where you give the patient a topical or oral Sorolin, which increases photosensitivity prior to giving the patient UVA light. Next, we'll talk briefly about some of the oral agents used for psoriasis, including methotrexate, cyclosporin, acetretin, also known as psoriatane, and apremilast, also known as otesla. Methotrexate works by blocking dihydrofolate reductase and thus inhibits purine synthesis in S phase. Since T cells don't have a purine salvage pathway, they can no longer synthesize DNA and thus cell division is inhibited by methotrexate. Remember, these T cells are what are causing a lot of the inflammation in psoriasis. Methotrexate can be dosed anywhere from 2.5 mg to 25 mg taking PO 
once weekly. The dosing may be divided in two to three doses taken every 12 hours weekly for better bioavailability, and patients should take folic acid one milligram daily on the days they don't take the methotrexate in order to decrease toxicity such as anemia. Some providers also simply give a single weekly dose of 5 milligrams of folic acid 8 to 12 hours after the methotrexate dose is given. Okay, Einstein. But given the mechanism of action of methotrexate, wouldn't concomitant use of folic acid decrease efficacy? The short and sweet answer is no. Folic acid does not decrease efficacy. Methotrexate is contraindicated in patients who are pregnant or have active infections, renal disease due to it being renally cleared, or cytopenias such as anemia, leukopenia, or thrombocytopenia due to its bone marrow suppression. GI side effects are the most common, and interstitial pneumonitis is a rare but severe side effect that is worth remembering. It is also important to avoid using Bactrim in patients taking methotrexate because Bactrim can worsen side effects due to displacing methotrexate from binding serum proteins leading to more active drug. As far as screening and monitoring methotrexate, patient screening labs typically consist of a CBC, CMP, hepatitis panel, pregnancy test, and HIV test if risk factors are present. TB tests such as quantifiron gold aren't required but are often done anyways since methotrexate is often used on a path to using a biologic. Monitoring for methotrexate includes a CBC at week 2 and 4 with LFTs done at week 1 and 2. A CBC and CMP can be repeated every 3 months. Some say that a liver biopsy should be done after anywhere from 1.5 to 4 grams of cumulative methotrexate, but some let patient's symptoms dictate the need for a liver biopsy. So, to hit the highlights for methotrexate, it is a dihydrofolate reductase inhibitor given in doses from 2.5 to 25 milligrams once weekly. It is contraindicated for patients with pregnancy or active infections, liver disease, renal disease, or various cytopenias. Side effects for methotrexate commonly include GI issues, but watch out for serious ones like pancytopenia, hepatotoxicity, and rarely pulmonary fibrosis. Next, we have cyclosporin. And what is the mechanism of action of cyclosporin? And I don't want some simpleton answer such as it's an immunosuppressant. Cyclosporin works by complexing with cyclophilin to inhibit calcineurin and ultimately reduce IL-2 production. It is usually started at 2.5 mg per kg per day, divided into BID dosing. Cyclosporin is contraindicated in patients with impaired renal function, uncontrolled hypertension, malignancy, and serious infections. Side effects include nephrotoxicity, hypertension, GI changes, headache and vertigo, hypertrichosis, gingival hyperplasia, and lab changes. Let's talk lab work, and I'm not referring to your venereal disease workup after last weekend's bender. What lab abnormalities might be seen in a patient on cyclosporine? I remember the lab abnormalities of cyclosporine by remembering the mnemonic bulk up, with the B standing for hyperbilirubinemia, the U standing for hyperuricemia, or uric acid, which we know causes gout, the L standing for hyperlipidemia, and the K for hyperkalemia, with the up in bulk up referring to the elevated levels of all of these. So again, for these lab changes caused by cyclosporin, remember bulk up, referring to the elevated levels of bilirubin, uric acid, lipids, and potassium. 
Another electrolyte abnormality seen in cyclosporin patients is also a low magnesium level. Lab screening prior to starting cyclosporin includes some of the same screening labs as methotrexate, a CBC, CMP, hepatitis panel, pregnancy test, and quantifiron gold. In addition, you should check magnesium and uric acid levels, fasting lipids, a UA, and the patient's blood pressure. Once a patient has started their cyclosporin, you should repeat a CBC, CMP, lipid panel, UA, mag level, and blood pressure monthly for two months, and then every three months after that. It's important to pay especially close attention to the patient's renal function. Their creatinine increases 30% over their baseline. You should decrease the dose and monitor accordingly. So here's cyclosporin in a nutshell. It works by complexing with cyclophilin to inhibit calcineurin and decreases IL-2 production. It is contraindicated in patients with impaired renal function, uncontrolled hypertension, malignancy, and serious infections. Side effects of cyclosporin include renal damage and resulting hypertension, GI changes, and the lab changes we remember with the bulk-up mnemonic, standing for elevated bilirubin, uric acid, lipids, and potassium levels. So we've discussed two oral agents for psoriasis by going over methotrexate and cyclosporin, and we've got two to go, acetretin and apremolase. Acetretin, aka psoriatane, is an oral retinoid that is usually used for severe psoriasis cases and is especially useful for pustular, palmoplantar, plantar, and erythrodermic psoriasis patients. It is dosed at 25 to 50 milligrams per day. Acetretin is contraindicated in pregnant patients or those of childbearing age who can't guarantee contraception, along with severe liver or kidney dysfunction and excessive alcohol use, because alcohol converts acetretin to etretinate, which has a much longer half-life and stays in the body for up to three years. Side effects of acetretin include dry eyes, decreased night vision, dry lips, elevated liver enzymes, and teratogenicity. Screening labs include CBC, CMP, lipid panel, and a pregnancy test. These labs can be repeated at one month into therapy and every three months thereafter. Then the last oral agent that we'll discuss is apremolast, aka Otesla, which works by inhibiting phosphodiesterase type 4, which leads to an increase in cyclic AMP levels that inhibit TNF-alpha, IL-17, and IL-23. Unlike methotrexate, cyclosporin, and acetretin, no lab monitoring is required. Common side effects include diarrhea and nausea. Dosing for apremolast is titrated up to 30 mg BID, with daily dose change instructions on the packaging. Before we jump into our discussion on biologics, I want to mention that there is a lot of variance with monitoring for these oral agents. Many dermatologists will order different labs at different frequencies, so just know that what I mentioned is not the only way to do it. Also, I want to quickly go over POSI scores. What does POSI stand for? Mark my words, you always sound more intelligent when you utilize the full name. If you want to be a dermatologist, I suggest you rid your vocabulary of acronyms right now. POSI stands for Psoriasis Area and Severity Index. It is a score from 0 to 72 based on the patient's body surface area that is affected, and a 0 to 4 score is given to lesion erythema, induration, and desquamation or scaling. The POSI score is used more in research than it is clinically, but it is super important to understand what it means when reading the literature on these biologics and for counseling patients. When someone mentions a POSI 75, this refers to a 75% reduction in a patient's POSI score. 
So, a patient would have successfully reached a POSI 75 if their initial POSI score of 40 was reduced 75% to a final score of 10. In layman's terms, a POSI 75 means the patient's skin is 75% better than when you started treatment. All right, biologic time. We could spend an entire episode going over just one of these drugs, so we'll hit the highlights and maybe dedicate a full episode to them down the line. I also want to mention that I have no financial connection to the companies that make these drugs. I'm simply giving you the generic and brand names for these and all the other medications that we've discussed so you know them and you can carry on a conversation in a dermatology office. For this episode, I'll lump these biologics into three main categories based on their mechanism. We have the TNF-alpha inhibitors, the IL-17 inhibitors, and those affecting IL-23. Since all of these biologics inhibit the immune system in some way, patients are screened and monitored for malignancies such as lymphoma and infections such as hepatitis and tuberculosis, along with HIV if it is suspected. So let's jump into each category and we'll highlight some unique side effects and associations for each as we go. The first group are the TNF-alpha inhibitors. Name three TNF-alpha inhibitors used for psoriasis. These include etanercept, infliximab, and adalimumab. Besides screening patients for hepatitis, tuberculosis, and malignancy, these agents have a possible association with congestive heart failure and neurologic disease such as multiple sclerosis and Guillain-Barre syndrome. Therefore, patients should be screened for them. Other side effects include injection site reactions and the rare occurrence of paradoxical worsening of psoriasis. The first TNF-alpha inhibitor that we'll discuss is etanercept, aka Enbril, which is a fully human fusion protein of the TNF receptor linked to the FC portion of IgG, which binds soluble and membrane-bound TNF. The sept of etanercept refers to the TNF receptor portion of this fusion protein. Etanercept is given as 50 mg sub-Q injections twice weekly for three months and then weekly after that. Etanercept is unique in that it is approved for kids with psoriasis greater than four years old. Next, we have infliximab, aka Remicade, which is a chimeric mouse human IgG antibody that binds TNF. The XI in the name infliximab refers to the chimeric fusion of human and foreign protein. For more on why biologics are named the way they are, Google biologic nomenclature and read through some of these charts. Infliximab is unique in that it is given IV. Both start with an I, infliximab, IV, easy to remember. It is given at 5 mg per kg at weeks 0, 2, 6, and then every 8 weeks. The last TNF-alpha inhibitor that we'll discuss is adalimumab, spelled A-D-A-L-I-M-U-M-A-B. Adalimumab, also known as Humira. It is a fully human monoclonal IgG antibody against the transmembrane TNF receptor. The mu in adalimumab refers to a fully human source, whereas the mab refers to monoclonal antibody. Adalimumab is given subcutaneously with 40 mg syringes and is dosed with a 80 mg loading dose, then a 40 mg dose on day 8, and then 40 mg every 2 weeks after that. Keep in mind that this dose of adalimumab is very different from the one that's used for hydradenitis superativa. All right, Peter Pan, how about three IL-17 inhibitors? 
Remember that IL-17 is the cytokine made by the Th17 cells that leads to inflammation and increased keratinocyte proliferation. The three IL-17 inhibitors that we'll discuss include Ixekizumab, spelled I-X-E-K-I-Z-U-M-A-B, Ixekizumab, also known as TALTS, and number two, Secukinumab, spelled S-E-C-U-K-I-N-U-M-A-B, Secukinumab, aka Cosentix, and three, Brodalumab, aka Silik, spelled S-I-L-I-Q. Brodalumab differs in that it is an IL-17 receptor inhibitor, while Ixekizumab and Secukinumab bind and block the IL-17A molecule itself. The side effect profile for these agents are similar to the TNFs, except that there is no increased risk of heart failure, neurologic disorders like MS, or lymphoma risk. One condition to screen for, however, is inflammatory bowel disease such as ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, since there have been reports of new onset or exacerbation of IBD in patients taking IL-17 inhibitors. In addition, brodalumab has been associated with depression and suicidal ideation and should be screened as such. Something that makes the IL-17 inhibitors stand out is that they work very quickly. As far as dosing, all are given subcutaneously. Ixekizumab, aka TALTS, is given in a larger 160mg initial dose, then 80mg every two weeks until week 12, and then monthly afterwards. Secukinumab, aka Cosentix, is given at a dose of 300mg weekly for five weeks, and then 300mg monthly after that. And last, Brodalumab, aka Salik, is given at 210mg on week 0, 1, and 2, and then every two weeks after that. Now that we've discussed the TNF-alpha and IL-17 inhibitors, let's chat about the last group, which are the newer biologic agents that affect IL-23. Remember, it is IL-23 that stimulates the Th17 cells to make IL-17, IL-22, and TNF-alpha. The two agents that we'll discuss have very different mechanisms for affecting IL-23, and they are ustekinumab, aka Stellara, and goselkumab, aka Tremphia. Ustekinumab is actually an IL-12 and IL-23 inhibitor because it blocks the P40 subunit that is common to both of these cytokines. Again, ustekinumab blocks IL-12 and IL-23 by blocking the P40 subunit that is on both of them. Then there's goselkumab, aka Tremphia, which blocks IL-23 only by blocking its P19 subunit. This means that there are two subunits of IL-23 that are targeted by biologics. The P40 subunit is blocked by ustekinumab, whereas the P19 subunit is blocked by goselkumab. As far as dosing, ustekinumab is dosed based on weight. Patients less than 100 kg get 45 mg for each dose, whereas those greater than 100 kg get double that dose at 90 mg. No matter the patient's weight, they receive injections at day 1, 1 month later, and then every 3 months for Stellara. For goselkumab, also known as Tremphia, it is dosed at 100 mg at week 0, 4, and then every 8 weeks after that. Alright my friends, I know that's a ton of info, but listen through this episode a few times and I promise that it'll stick better. Now let's get back in clinic with Dr. Grumpy Pants and our psoriasis patient and put some of this newfound knowledge to use. After some of Dr. Grumpy Pants' questions, I recommend that you pause the podcast and really talk out what your answer would be. It never hurts to practice in the safety of your own car or wherever you're listening. So you're sitting eating lunch with Dr. G when he says, Now, now, this sirloin is delicious. 
You know, I'm so experienced, I can simply look at a rash and tell you exactly what the biopsy would say. So for this psoriasis guy, if I were to biopsy him, what would it show? You respond, well, starting at the surface, you would see perikeratosis with collections of newts called Monroe's microabscesses in the stratum corneum. There is classically a decreased or absent granular layer and regular acanthosis with thinning of the epidermis above the dermal papilla. Okay, I've certainly heard worse answers. What is the mechanism that is causing these psoriasis plaques? Well, sir, there are two main issues. The keratinocytes are proliferating at a faster rate and the immune system is ramped up. We think the increased inflammation is due to the Th1 and Th17 cells and the cytokines they make. The Th1 cells are making interferon gamma in a variety of interleukins like IL-2, 6, 8, and 12, which contribute to an increase in active CD8 cells that are causing inflammation in the skin. Then there's Th17 cells that are making IL-17 and IL-22 that increase inflammation and more keratinocyte proliferation. By golly, Dr. G, even the keratinocytes themselves are making TNF-alpha and causing more inflammation. Okay, so you've read basic pathophysiology of psoriasis, bare minimum. Now walk me through the stepwise approach to the treatment of psoriasis. You respond, well, for starters, eliminate anything that could be triggering the patient's psoriasis, stress, smoking and alcohol, infections, hypocalcemia for pustular psoriasis, and anything that kebnerizes the skin, and then the medications such as lithium, antimalarials, ACE inhibitors, and beta blockers. Then as far as prescription medications, mild disease can be treated with a variety of topicals including steroids, calcipatriene, and a host of others including calcineurin inhibitors, topical retinoids, anthralin, coltars, and salicylic acid. When these topicals don't cut it, we reach for more systemic treatments. UV treatments such as narrowband and broadband UVB, eczema laser, or PUVA can be helpful. Then there are oral agents like methotrexate, cyclosporin, acetretin, and apremolase that can be used. And then finally, we have all the biologics. Well, then tell me as many of these fancy new biologic treatments that you know and what they are actually targeting. Well, you have the TNF-alpha inhibitors, etanercept, also known as Enbrel, infliximab, also known as Remicade, and adalimumab, also known as Humira. Then there's the IL-17 inhibitors, ixacizumab, also known as Taltz, secukinumab, a.k.a. Cosentix, and brodalumab, a.k.a. Salik. And then the newer agents that affect IL-23. You have ustekinumab, also known as Stellara, which blocks the P40 subunit on both IL-12 and 23. And then Goselkumab, aka Tremphia, which blocks the P19 subunit on IL-23 only. I never thought I'd say this, but it turns out there is a hint, albeit very faint, of intelligence in that thick skull of yours. So that does it for the second episode on psoriasis. I know it's a lot of information and in that we only scratched the surface on the biologics, but maybe in the future we will dedicate more time to each of these agents. Since I highly recommend listening to this episode multiple times to get the content down, I will avoid making the episode any longer by adding an additional summary. Alright, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. 
and that's with two Z's, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Gren Zone podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.